Welcome to Science Journal, an audio journal production presenting articles of interest from science magazines, newspapers, and online resources on topics such as technology, health, and the environment. This program is supported in part by Cognex and UMass Medical School. Our program today will bring you articles from such varied sources as Science Daily, the New York Times Science Section, The New Scientist, The New Yorker Magazine, and a wonderful book called What If by Randall Monroe. This is Tricia Droney. Today we'll begin with an article, actually two articles, from the New York Times Science Section about nutrition. The first, 10 Nutrition Tips for a Healthy New Year, was written by Alice Callahan in December 28, 2023. As a health reporter who's been following nutrition news for decades, I've seen a lot of trends that made a splash and then sank. Remember Olestra, the paleo diet, and celery juice? Watch enough food fads come and go, and you realize that the most valuable nutrition guidance is built on decades of research, in which scientists have looked at a question from multiple perspectives and arrived at something like a consensus. Here are 10 science-backed pearls to carry you into 2024. Number one, the Mediterranean diet is really good for you. Decades of research support the Mediterranean diet, which is centered on fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, olive oil, nuts, herbs, and spices as one of the healthiest ways you can eat. Its heart health benefits are numerous, and it has been linked to a lower risk of type 2 diabetes, cognitive decline, and certain types of cancers. Number two, it's okay to drink coffee on an empty stomach. Some people may experience heartburn, but there's no evidence that drinking coffee on an empty stomach can damage your gastric lining or otherwise harm your digestive system, experts say. And there are reasons to feel good about your morning brew. Drinking coffee has been linked to a longer life and a lower risk of heart disease and type 2 diabetes. Number three, start your day with a healthy breakfast. Mornings can be hectic, and it may be tempting to grab a quick muffin or skip breakfast altogether. But nutrition experts say it's worth prioritizing that morning meal, especially if it contains a balanced mix of protein, fiber, and healthy fats. It will fuel your day, and studies have found that those who eat breakfast tend to enjoy a range of health benefits, including a lower risk of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. Number four, take good care of your gut. Keeping your digestive system healthy and running smoothly can protect you from life's discomforts like heartburn, bloating, and constipation, as well as lead to better overall health. Unsurprisingly, the best way to care for your gut is to feed yourself and by extension your gut microbes well by prioritizing fiber and consuming a variety of plant-based and fermented foods. Number five, you probably don't need protein bars. They're often marketed as a health food or as an essential fuel for athletic performance, but most protein bars are loaded with sugar. You're better off meeting your protein needs with whole foods like yogurt, nuts, beans, or eggs, experts say. Number six, go easy on the dark chocolate. 
filed this as one of the saddest nutrition news stories of 2024. Dark chocolate has some of the highest levels of lead and cadmium, heavy metals, both that can harm the body, when compared with other foods. Fortunately, you don't have to give up your dark chocolate habit entirely. Enjoying it in moderation, no more than about an ounce per day, experts say, will keep your risk low. Number seven, blending fruits and veggies won't destroy their nutrients. Pureeing fruits and vegetables in a blender won't strip them of their vitamins, minerals, or fiber. And somewhat surprisingly, several small studies suggest that sipping your fruit in blended form won't spike your blood sugar any more than when you eat it whole. So go ahead, enjoy your smoothie, and check out our tips for making yours more nutritious. Number eight, cottage cheese is back. You might associate cottage cheese with fad diets from the 1970s, but it's a food that has stood the test of time. Cottage cheese was a breakout hit on TikTok this past summer, and for good reason. You can eat it plain or use it as a versatile ingredient in both sweet and savory snacks, and it offers an impressive array of nutrients, including protein, calcium, selenium, and more. Number nine, tofu really is good for you too. In past decades, people have worried that tofu and other soy foods might be linked with cancer or fertility problems because they contain estrogen-like compounds. But studies have put those fears to bed, scientists say. In fact, research suggests that eating soy-based foods may reduce your risk of heart disease and even some types of cancer. And finally, number 10, it is challenging to separate nutrition myths from facts. Myths about nutrition tend to linger in American culture and in our minds, leaving us confused and sometimes even anxious about our eating decisions. We asked 10 nutrition experts which myths they wish would disappear, like plates of fresh cookies at a holiday party. This next related article continues about 10 nutrition myths experts wish would die. This was written January 19th by Sophie Egan, also from the New York Times. Soy milk can raise the risk of breast cancer. Fat-free foods are healthier than high-fat foods. Vegans and vegetarians are deficient in protein. Some false ideas about nutrition seem to linger in American culture like a terrible song stuck in your head. So to set the record straight, we asked 10 of the top nutrition experts in the United States a simple question. What is one nutrition myth you wish would go away and why? And here's what they said. Myth number one, fresh fruits and vegetables are always healthier than canned, frozen, or dried varieties. Despite the enduring belief that fresh is best, research has found that frozen, canned, and dried fruits and vegetables can be just as nutritious as their fresh counterparts. They can also be a money saver and an easy way to make sure there are always fruits and vegetables available at home, said Sarah Blight, the outgoing director of nutrition security and health equity at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, also a professor of public health policy at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. One caveat, some canned, frozen, and dried varieties contain sneaky ingredients like added sugars, saturated fats, and sodium, Dr. Bleich said, so be sure to read nutrition labels and opt for products that keep those ingredients to a minimum. Myth number two, all fat is bad. 
When studies published in the late 1940s found correlations between high-fat diets and high levels of cholesterol, experts reasoned that if you reduce the amount of total fats in your diet, your risk for heart disease would go down. By the 1980s, doctors, federal health experts, the food industry, and the news media were reporting that a low-fat diet could benefit everyone, even though there was no solid evidence that doing so would prevent issues like heart disease or overweight and obesity. Dr. Vijay Surampudi, an assistant professor of medicine at the University of California, said that as a result, the vilification of fats led many people and food manufacturers to replace calories from fat with calories from refined carbohydrates like white flour and added sugar. Remember snack wells? Instead of helping the country stay slim, the rates of overweight and obesity went up significantly, she said. In reality, Dr. Surampudi added, not all fats are bad. While certain types of fats, including saturated and trans fats, can increase your risk for conditions like heart disease or stroke, healthy fats like monounsaturated fats, which are found in olive and other plant oils, avocados and certain nuts and seeds, and polyunsaturated fats found in sunflower and other plant oils, walnuts, fish, and flax seeds, actually help reduce your risk. Good fats are also important for supplying energy, producing important hormones, supporting cell function, and aiding in the absorption of some nutrients. If you see a product labeled fat-free, don't automatically assume that it's healthy, Dr. Surampudi said. Instead, prioritize products with simple ingredients and no added sugars. Myth number three. Calories in, calories out is the most important factor for long-term weight gain. It's true that if you consume more calories than you burn, you will probably gain weight. And if you burn more calories than you consume, you will probably lose weight, at least for the short term. But the research does not suggest that eating more will cause sustained weight gain that results in becoming overweight or obese. Rather, it's the types of foods we eat that may be the long-term drivers of those conditions. Dr. Darius Mazafarian, a professor of nutrition and medicine at the at Tufts University, said ultra-processed foods such as refined starchy snacks, cereals, crackers, energy bars, baked goods, sodas, and sweets can be particularly harmful for weight gain as they are rapidly digested and flood the bloodstream with glucose, fructose, and amino acids, which are converted to fat by the liver. Instead, what's needed for maintaining a healthy weight is a shift from counting calories to prioritizing healthy eating overall, quality over quantity. Myth number four, people with type 2 diabetes should not eat fruit. This myth stems from conflating fruit juices, which can raise blood sugar levels because of their high sugar and low fiber content with whole fruits. But research has found that this just isn't the case. Some studies show, for instance, that those who consume one serving of whole fruit per day, particularly blueberries, grapes, and apples, have a lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And other research suggests that if you already have type 2 diabetes, eating whole fruits can help control your blood sugar. It's time to bust this myth, said Dr. Linda Shu, an internist and director of culinary medicine and lifestyle medicine at Kaiser Permanente San Francisco. 
adding that everyone, including those with type 2 diabetes, can benefit from the health-promoting nutrients in fruit like fiber, vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. Myth number five, plant milk is healthier than dairy milk. There's a perception that plant-based milk, such as those made from oats, almonds, rice, and hemp, are more nutritious than cow's milk. It's just not true, said Kathleen Merrigan, a professor of sustainable food systems at Arizona State University. Consider protein. Typically, cow's milk has about 8 grams of protein per cup, whereas almond milk typically has around 1 or 2 grams per cup, and oat milk usually has around 2 or 3 grams per cup. While the nutrition of plant-based beverages can vary, Dr. Merrigan said many have more added ingredients like sodium and added sugars, which can contribute to poor health than cow's milk. Myth number six, white potatoes are bad for you. Potatoes have often been vilified in the nutrition community because of their high glycemic index, which means they contain rapidly digestible carbohydrates that can spike your blood sugar. However, potatoes can actually be beneficial for health, said Daphne Altima Johnson, a program officer for food communities and public health at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. They are rich in vitamin C, potassium, fiber, and other nutrients, especially when consumed with the skin. They are also inexpensive and found year-round in grocery stores, making them more accessible. Healthier preparation methods include roasting, baking, boiling, and air frying. Myth number seven, you should never feed peanut products to your children within their first few years of life. For years, experts told new parents that the best way to prevent their children from developing food allergies was to avoid feeding them common allergenic foods like peanuts or eggs during their first few years of life. But now, allergy experts say it is better to introduce peanut products to your child early on. If your baby does not have severe eczema or a known food allergy, you can start introducing peanut products such as watered-down peanut butter, peanut puffs or peanut powders, but not whole peanuts, at around four to six months when your baby is ready for solids. Start with two teaspoons of smooth peanut butter mixed with water, breast milk, or formula two to three times a week, said Dr. Ruchi Gupta, a professor of pediatrics and the director of the Center for Food Allergy and Asthma Research at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. If your baby has severe eczema, first ask your pediatrician or an allergist about starting peanut products around four months. It is also important to feed your baby a diverse diet in their first year of life to prevent food allergies, Dr. Gupta said. Myth number eight, the protein in plants is incomplete. Where do you get your protein is the number one question vegetarians get asked, said Christopher Gardner, a nutrition scientist and professor of medicine at Stanford University. The myth is that plants are completely missing some amino acids, also known as the building blocks of proteins, he said. But in reality, all plant-based foods contain all 20 amino acids, including all nine essential amino acids, Dr. Gardner said. The difference is that the proportion of these amino acids isn't 
as ideal as the proportion of amino acids in animal-based foods. So to get an adequate mix, you simply need to eat a variety of plant-based foods throughout the day, such as beans, grains, and nuts, and eat enough total protein. Luckily, most Americans get more than enough protein each day. It's easier than most people think, Dr. Gardner said. Myth number nine, eating soy-based foods can increase the risk of breast cancer. High doses of plant estrogens in soy, called isoflavones, have been found to stimulate breast tumor cell growth in animal studies. However, this relationship has not been substantiated in human studies, said Frank Hu, a professor and chair of the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. So far, the science does not indicate a link between soy intake and breast cancer risk in humans. Instead, consuming soy-based foods and drinks like tofu, tempeh, edamame, miso, and soy milk may even have a protective effect toward breast cancer risk and survival. Soy foods are also a powerhouse of beneficial nutrients related to reduced heart disease risk, such as high-quality protein, fiber, vitamins, and minerals, Dr. Hu said. The research is clear. Feel confident incorporating soy foods into your diet. And finally, the, the last myth, number 10, noted by nutritionists that they wish would go away, Fundamental nutrition advice keeps changing a lot. This is not the case, said Dr. Marion Nestle, Nestle, a professor emerita of nutrition, food studies, and public health at New York University. In the 1950s, the first dietary recommendations for pre- prevention of diabetes, obesity, and heart disease, and the like, advised balancing calories and minimizing food highs in saturated fat, salt, and sugar. The current U.S. dietary guidelines urge the same. Yes, science evolves, but the bottom line dietary guidance remains consistent. As author Michael Pollan distilled to seven simple words, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. That advice worked 70 years ago, and it still does today, Dr. Nestle said, and it leaves plenty of room for eating foods that you love. Next up is an article by Siobhan Roberts, written December 29th, 2023, entitled, Need a Home for 80,000 Puzzles? Try an Italian Castle. Meet the Millers, George and Roxanne, proprietors of the world's largest collection of mechanical puzzles. Physical objects that a puzzler holds and manipulates while seeking a solution. In total, the Miller Collection, an accumulation of collections and collections of collections, amounts to more than 80,000 puzzles. It comprises some 5,000 Rubik's Cubes, including a 2x2x2 rendering of Darth Vader's head. And there are more than 7,000 wooden burr puzzles, such as the interlocking polyhedral creations by Stuart Coffin, a Massachusetts puzzle maker. They evoke a hybrid of a pine cone and a snowflake and are Mr. Miller's favorites. Mrs. Miller is fond of their 140 brass, bronze, and gold puzzle sculptures by the Spanish artist Miguel Barocal. Goliath, a male torso in 79 pieces, is a puzzle that all puzzlers lust after, she said. 
Until recently, the Miller Collection resided at Puzzle Palace in Boca Raton, Florida, filling their mansion and a museum, a smaller house, next door. Puzzles occupied even the bathrooms. Then last year, on a whim, the Millers bought a 15th-century 52-room castle in Panacal, a hamlet in central Italy. They packed their puzzle collection into five 40-foot shipping containers and, for their own transit, booked a cruise from Miami to Rome. Before sailing away in April, the Millers went on a two-month road trip, a last hurrah, Mr. Miller called it, visiting puzzler friends from coast to coast. Along the way, they accumulated more puzzles. In Garden Grove, California, they loaded up a cargo van with 58 boxes from Marty Rice, who donated her collection of folksy punning puzzles by the designer R.G. Watkins, such as Diamond Ring, a dime with a metal ring passing through the coin center. The puzzle maker, Lee Krasnow, who has production facilities in Portland, Oregon and Grand Rapids, Michigan, met the Millers at a puzzle party on the outskirts of Austin, Texas, and hand-delivered his famed clutch box. Made from exotic hardwoods and precision machined metals, it opens with a subtle unlocking mechanism. The goal is simply the thrill of having opened it, Mrs. Miller said. And then, if you're daring, Mr. Krasnow added in an email, the goal is to fully disassemble it into about 40 individual pieces. For the Millers, nothing compared with the thrill of finally getting their hands on the second version of Mega Mansion, their Florida abode miniaturized as a sequential discovery box. Mrs. Miller commissioned this creation in February 2020 from Tracy Wood Clemens Batts, a puzzle artist in Scottsville, New York. The original construction was irreparably damaged in an ordeal with the courier company. The box opens as the puzzler finds 14 hidden keys and tools that unlock four tiers of discovery in 130 steps. I hate solving puzzles. I don't enjoy it at all, Mrs. Clemens Bat said in a Zoom interview. I enjoy stumping people. Puzzle Land is populated by self-described zealots. For instance, Brett Rothstein, a historian of visual and material cultures of play at Indiana University in Bloomington, is the author of a book about puzzles, The Shape of Difficulty, a Fan Letter to Unruly Objects. Therein, Dr. Rothstein observes that Thomas Kuhn, a historian and philosopher of science, aligned puzzling with scientific inquiry. Puzzles force us to embrace error, Dr. Rothstein notes, adding that perhaps their most beautiful feature is their continual erosion of certitude. Next up, an article by Pam Bullock, written early January 2024, entitled More Women Who Are Not Pregnant Are Ordering Abortion Pills Just In Case. The practice known as advanced provision is relatively new and has increased significantly since the Supreme Court's decision in 2022 to overturn the national right to abortion. In the study published in the journal JAMA Internal Medicine, researchers evaluated data from Aid Access, a telehealth organization that has long provided abortion pills to women in the first 13 weeks of pregnancy and began offering the medication to women in the United States who weren't pregnant in September 2021. 
Before May of 2022, when a draft of the Supreme Court decision was leaked, Aid Access had received about 6,000 advanced provision requests, averaging 25 per day. Since then, it has received over 42,000 requests, averaging 118 per day, said Dr. Abigail Aiken, an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin and co-author of the study. The biggest spikes in demand followed events that raised doubts about the future availability of abortion. Requests peaked in the weeks between the leak and the Supreme Court's decision in June of 2022. And in April 2023, after a flurry of court rulings in a lawsuit by abortion opponents seeking to curtail Mifepristone, a key abortion pill, a case now before the Supreme Court. Rates of requests were highest in states where abortion bans were expected, even higher than in states that already had bans. Asked why they requested the pills, most women said to ensure personal health and choice and prepare for possible abortion restrictions, according to the study. People were obviously paying attention and seeing the threat of abortion access either going away or being reduced where they were and thinking, I need to get prepared for that, Dr. Aiken said. Data from September 2021 through April 2023 showed 48,404 advanced provision requests and 147,000 requests from women seeking to terminate existing pregnancies. Women in both categories completed telehealth consultations and aid access evaluated their medical information before prescribing pills. Advanced provision requesters were more likely than those already pregnant to be 30 or older, white and childless, and to live in urban neighborhoods with lower poverty rates than the national average. That might be partly because aid access offers free or reduced price services to pregnant patients who need financial assistance, while advanced provision requesters were expected to pay the full $110 cost, Dr. Aiken said. And because few organizations offer advanced provision, women from marginalized or low-income communities might be less aware that it's even a thing you can do, she said. Medication abortion typically involves two pills, mifepristone, which has a shelf life of three to five years, followed a day or two later by misoprostol, which has a shelf life of 18 to 24 months. Dr. Aiken said a subset of advanced provision requesters, 937 women, two-thirds of them in states with abortion bans or restrictions, answered follow-up questions. Most still had the pills, but 58 had taken them and 55 had given them to someone else. About 60% took the pills before seven weeks of pregnancy, early in the recommended time frame. A vast majority reported having enough information, including about expected bleeding and cramping. All 58 said the pills worked. Five visited health care providers afterward, but none went to the hospital or had serious complications. Legal scholars say advanced provision may be legal in some states with abortion bans. Many state abortion laws require a provider to know a person is pregnant. Three law professors, David Cohen, Greer Donnelly, and Rachel Reboche, wrote in an article to be published in the Stanford Law Review. However, they added, in some states, abortion providers might be legally vulnerable since they know that the pills are prescribed to terminate a future pregnancy.
Abortion opponents object to advanced provision and claim abortion medication is dangerous. Abortion rights supporters say prescribing it in case of future need, like antibiotics for traveler's diarrhea, increases access and underscores that the pills are safe, as many studies show. Our next article by Kunvel Sheikh written January of 2024, is entitled, How to Start Working Out Again. Resolving to get back into exercise or take up a new fitness routine is one of the best things you can do for your health, but it can also be overwhelming. How do you motivate yourself to lace up your sneakers when you haven't gone on a run for months? Should you jump back into the interval training program you tried before or search for something more fun? And how do you safely ramp up your workouts if you feel out of shape? To help you start an exercise plan and stick with it, we tapped fitness pros for advice on setting realistic goals, reducing injury risk, and actually enjoying yourself. First, make it easy to win. Trying to radically change your behavior for a broad goal like setting in shape requires a level of motivation that can be hard to sustain. Instead, set measurable bite-sized goals, such as getting at least 10 minutes of exercise daily. It's okay if you're not matching what your peers are doing or even what you were able to achieve in the past. Pushing yourself too hard, too fast will only make you more prone to exhaustion and injury and may lead you to stop working out. You're more likely to repeat an activity you enjoy, so try picking up a sport you liked in high school or bundle your workout with binging your favorite TV show or podcast. And cap how much you exercise, at least in the beginning, so that you can meet and even exceed your goal. This will encourage you to keep going. People get hyper-fixated on cultivating motivation, said Al Heil, a strength coach who specializes in helping people with ADHD, who sometimes struggle with starting activities. You just need to do a little bit of something. Then the motivation is going to come after. Schedule time for muscle building. Once you're back into the swing of regular physical activity, start incorporating exercises to build muscle strength and flexibility. This will make it easier to do more strenuous activities and protect your joints from injury, said Dr. Gabriel Lyon, a functional medicine practitioner based in Houston and the author of Forever Strong, a new science-based strategy for aging well. To start, try body weight exercises like push-ups or squats at home or use weight machines at a gym. Most experts recommend doing three sets of 8 to 12 reps for each exercise, focusing on your form. Then add one or two new exercises weekly until you're working out all muscle groups, chest, back, shoulders, arms, abdominals, and legs, at least twice a week. Later on, add resistance when you're ready or switch from a fixed number of reps to working out your muscles to exhaustion. You can determine when to start this by assessing your rate of perceived exertion. On a scale of 1 to 10, you should be just about in the middle, Mr. Heil said. If it feels easier than that, make your workout more challenging. No matter what kind of exercise routine you get into, you'll need to start work on cardiovascular endurance. Most people can start with low-impact activities like walking or even just taking the stairs at the office. To start, 
Strive to extend how long you can do a light cardio by a few minutes every couple of weeks. Your heart's ability to pump blood, also known as its stroke volume, improves fairly quickly, said Benjamin Gordon, an assistant professor of applied physiology and kinesiology at the University of Florida. In just the first 10 days of training, we see about a 10% change in people's stroke volume, Dr. Gordon said. That means you'll soon be able to work out for longer. Later on, you want to build up to 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity every week to get the best benefits. Prepare for the things that have tripped up your fitness routine in the past. For example, if you skipped exercising because you didn't have time to fit it into your day, consider setting reminders to work out at 6 a.m., noon, and 5 so you can make at least one of those times. Or try exercising in short bursts. Do squats or balance on one foot while brushing your teeth. Or stash some hand weights at your desk to do a few reps while you're on calls. If your inner critic says you should stop because you're never going to see results, practice saying something like, I've got this. I'm already stronger than I was when I started. Celebrate little steps towards fitness, Mr. Heil said. Take pictures or do a monthly exercise assessment to measure your progress. Or ask yourself whether it feels easier to carry your groceries. Just remember that it can take time to notice outward changes. What's the rush, Dr. Gordon said. This is a lifestyle change, so you need to go in with the philosophy that you're going to try and keep improving fitness for life. Our next article is entitled, Serious Medical Errors Rose After Private Equity Firms Bought Hospitals. This was written by Reed Abelson and Margaret Sands Katz on December 26, 2023. The rate of serious medical complications increased in hospitals after they were purchased by private equity investment firms, according to a major study of the effects of such acquisitions on patient care in recent years. The study, published in JAMA in early December, found that in the three years after a private equity fund bought a hospital, adverse events including surgical infections and bed sores rose by 25% among Medicare patients when compared with similar hospitals that were not bought by such investors. The researchers reported a nearly 38% increase in central line infections, a dangerous kind of infection that medical authorities say should never happen, and a 27% increase in falls by patients while staying in the hospital. We were not surprised there was a signal, said Drs. Cannon, a healthcare researcher and physician at the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at Massachusetts General Hospital, who was the paper's lead author. I will say we were surprised at how strong it was. Although the researchers found a significant rise in medical errors, they also saw a slight decrease of nearly 5% in the rate of patients who died during their hospital stay. The researchers believe other changes, like a shift toward healthier patients admitted to the hospitals, could explain that decline. And by 30 days after patients were discharged, there was no significant difference in the death rates between hospitals. Other researchers who reviewed the study said that while it didn't provide a complete picture of private equity's effects, it did raise important questions about the quality of care in hospitals that had been taken over by private equity owners. 
This is a big deal because it's the first piece of data that I think pretty strongly suggests that there is a quality problem when private equity takes over, said Dr. Ashish Jha, the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health, who has also studied hospital safety extensively. Over the last two decades, private equity firms have become major players in healthcare, purchasing not just hospitals, but also a growing number of nursing homes, physician practices, and home health care companies. The firms pool money from institutional investors and individuals to form investment funds, often buying hospitals and other entities through high levels of debt, with an eye to reselling them in a few years. A separate recent study suggested the firms were consolidating physician groups in certain local markets, potentially leading to higher prices. So far, these firms own a small share of hospitals in the United States, though the numbers are hard to measure because the transactions are not always public. Several media reports have shown that some of the acquired hospitals have been forced to close because of financial distress, and some have come under regulatory scrutiny for quality problems. But such examples are not necessarily typical. The private equity industry plays an essential role in providing local hospitals with the capital they need to improve patient care, expand access, and drive innovation, said Drew Maloney, the chief executive of the American Investment Council, a trade group for the industry. This research doesn't reflect private equity's full record of strengthening health care across the country. The industry has recently come under scrutiny. This month, the Senate Budget Committee began a bipartisan investigation into private equity ownership of hospitals. And bills from several Democrats in Congress have pushed for more public reporting of private equity deals in health care and for broader reforms on ways the firms can acquire companies and earn profits. Several studies have examined private equity firms' financial effects on hospitals. The new paper, which examines 51 hospitals between 2009 and 2019, provides new evidence that those changes may result in more dangerous conditions for patients. The researchers, who also included Dr. Ziri Song from Harvard and Joseph Dov Bruch from the University of Chicago, received funding from Arnold Ventures, a group that supports a wide array of healthcare research and has been critical of the private equity industry. Previous research found that patients were less likely to die after visiting a private equity-backed hospital, but the researchers said they wanted to focus their study on specific measures like medical errors that more directly reflected the care in a hospital instead of patient deaths, which are more likely to be influenced by the health status of the patients entering the hospital. The researchers examined a range of errors that Medicare tracks and that Medicare encourages hospitals to minimize. Hospitals with high levels of some of these problems, like central line infections, must pay financial penalties to the government. Though not all of the errors happened often enough to be measured with precision, and the complications occurred rarely overall, All of the eight individual measures studied in the paper worsened in the hospitals purchased by private equity funds. Rates of these complications have generally been declining for about 15 years, as hospitals have worked to reduce them and as best practices for avoiding them have become more widespread. 
They are preventable adverse events that everyone thinks shouldn't happen in hospitals, said Dr. David Blumenthal, the former president of the Commonwealth Fund, a nonprofit healthcare research group who reviewed the study. Some private equity owners may be overly eager to cut costs, leading to a decline in the quality of care, he said. It's about the style of investing, he said. It's about the aggressiveness and short time frame profits and returns on investment that are sought. In the cases where they do not pursue this strategy, private equity can be positive, Dr. Blumenthal added. It brings capital. It brings innovation. The researchers said that the most likely explanation for the increased errors was fewer hospital employees, an effect that has been measured in other studies of private equity. Reductions in staffing after acquisition could explain all of these findings, Dr. Song said. But this paper did not directly measure staffing levels in the hospitals it examined. Dr. Song has advocated more government oversight of private equity firms in health care. But several scholars who have studied the firm said that while the new paper raises serious concerns, it still leaves some important questions unanswered for policymakers. This should make us lean forward and pay attention to what's happening, said Zach Cooper, a professor of public health and economics at Yale, who has examined the industry. It shouldn't cause us to introduce wholesale policies yet. Vivian Ho, a professor of economics at Rice, was a co-author on a paper that documented reductions in staffing after the firms bought hospitals, including small cuts to nursing. Professor Ho noted that it's hard to be sure whether the reductions were the result of the change in leadership or ownership by a private equity firm specifically, but she said the results were alarming enough that she was eager to see more evidence. I am willing to believe that it is because of the staffing issue, she said. You just combine that with the anecdotal reports of what is going on in some of these hospitals, and it is a consistent story. Next, we have an article entitled, Where's Airborne Plastic? Everywhere, scientists find. An article by John Schwartz. Plastic pollution isn't just fouling the world's oceans. It is also in the air we breathe, traveling on the wind, and drifting down from the skies, according to a new study. More than 1,000 tons of tiny fragments rain down each year on national parks and wilderness areas in the American West alone, equivalent to about 123 million and 300 million plastic bottles worth. There's no nook or cranny on the surface of the earth that won't have microplastics, says Janice Brahe, a Utah State University scientist who is a lead author on the recent study. It's really unnerving to think about it. While the troublesome presence of plastics in landfills, in the oceans, and in freshwater environments like the Great Lakes is well known, research into airborne particles is more recent. Previous papers have described finding airborne microplastics in, among other places, Europe, China, and in the Arctic. The paper, published in the journal Science, reports finding plastic in remote parts of the United States. The researchers collected samples from 11 national parks and wilderness areas. They found tiny bits of plastic in 98% of the 339 samples they collected. Plastics accounted for 4% of the dust particles that were tested. Finding so much plastic is supposedly pristine areas was a very surprising result, Dr. Brahini said. 
She and her colleagues returned to their calculations again and again, she said, assuming they were wrong, but they weren't. The collections were made under both dry conditions and during periods of rain and snow, which helped Dr. Brainy and co-authors Margaret Hallerud and Eric Heim of Utah State, Maura Hallenberg of Salt Lake Community College, and Suja Sukumaran of Thermo Fisher Scientific, determine the probable origins of the particles. Larger particles came down with rain and snow, while smaller ones showed up under dry conditions. The researchers concluded that the particles deposited in wet weather were likely to have originated from relatively nearby, with the plastic bits swept into the air by storms from urban centers, and then falling again with the rain and snow. The smaller, lighter particles, they suggested, had, in contrast, been carried extremely long distances on currents high in the atmosphere, and had become part of the cycles of global dust transport. The dry deposits constituted more than 75% of the plastic that was tested. The microfibers the researchers collected were consistent with the kinds of textiles used in making clothing and in producing carpeting and industrial coatings, as well as outdoor gear like tents and waterproof clothing. That means emissions from park users may contribute to the observed deposition rates, particularly in national parks with high visitation rates, though the researchers concluded that those sources did not produce a large portion of the overall samples. Chelsea Rockman, an assistant professor of ecology at the University of Toronto, who co-authored an accompanying commentary to the new study, said in an interview that the paper was not the first to show microplastics in atmospheric deposition, or even the atmospheric deposition of microplastics to remote places. But she added that the researchers seemed to be the first to ask through their research the basic science question, why and how is this happening? The commentary stated that the idea of plastic in rain is the kind of discovery that can strain one's imagination. Dr. Brainy added that the phenomenon could contribute to environmental disruption of microbial communities and cause broader ecological damage. Humans could be at risk as well, she said. The presence of so many fine particles in the air means we're breathing it too. The health effects of taking in plastic particles is not well known, though the sizes of the particles detected are consistent with the size of those that accumulate in lung tissue, she said. Previous studies of workplace exposure to high levels of inhaled plastic particles link them to lung disease and tissue damage. The concentrations of plastics in the outdoor environment are lower, but could contribute to the effects of particulates. Stephanie Wright, a lecturer in environmental toxicology at King's College London, who has studied the impact of inhaled microplastics on health, said that in the atmosphere, these concentrations are still trace amounts in comparison to other prominent particles, such as the black carbon found in everyday soot. Until we have a robust understanding of our exposure, it's difficult to infer health effects, she said. Joanna Prata, a Ph.D. student in biology and ecology of global change at the University of Aveiro in Portugal, who has also studied the health risks of airborne plastics, said that the newly discussed airborne plastics could already be contributing to the negative health effect of pollution and that adverse effects of chronic exposure to low concentrations of airborne microplastics cannot be excluded.
Dr. Rockman, the author of the commentary, said that the new research and our growing awareness of the amounts of plastic falling all around us led to the question of, what do you do with that? The paper provided an answer of sorts, but not an easy one. The consequences to ecosystems are not yet well understood, but are inescapable in the immediate future. If the potential dangers posed by environmental microplastics are to be mitigated, the authors wrote, what will be required is nothing less than the engagement of the global community. And next up, an article entitled Robots Learn, Chatbots Visualize, How 2024 Will Be AI's Leap Forward by Cade Metz from San Francisco, reported on January 8th, 2024. At an event in San Francisco in November, Sam Altman, the chief executive of the artificial intelligence company OpenAI, was asked what surprises the field would bring in 2024. Online chat box like OpenAI's ChatGPT will take a leap forward that no one expected, Mr. Altman immediately responded. Sitting beside him, James Manika, a Google executive, nodded and said, plus one to that. The AI industry this year is set to be defined by one main characteristic, a remarkably rapid movement of the technology as advancements build upon one another, enabling AI to generate new kinds of media, mimic human reasoning in new ways, and seep into the physical world through a new breed of robot. In the coming months, AI-powered image generators like DAL-E and Mid-Journey will instantly deliver videos as well as still images, and they will gradually merge with chatbots like ChatGPT. That means chatbots will expand well beyond digital text by handling photos, videos, diagrams, charts, and other media. They will exhibit behavior that looks more like human reasoning, tackling increasingly complex tasks in fields like math and science. As the technology moves into robots, it will also help to solve problems beyond the digital world. Many of these developments have already started emerging inside the top research labs and in tech products. But in 2024, the power of these products will grow significantly and be used by far more people. The rapid progress of AI will continue, said David Luan, the chief executive of ADEPT, an AI startup. It is inevitable. OpenAI, Google, and other tech companies are advancing AI far more quickly than other technologies because of the way the underlying systems are built. Most software apps are built by engineers, one line of computer code at a time, which is typically a slow and tedious process. Companies are improving AI more swiftly because the technology relies on neural networks, mathematical systems that can learn skills by analyzing digital data. By pinpointing patterns in data such as Wikipedia articles, books, and digital texts culled from the Internet, a neural network can learn to generate text on its own. This year, tech companies plan to feed AI systems more data, including images, sounds, and more text, than people can wrap their heads around. As these systems learn the relationship between these various kinds of data, they will learn to solve increasingly complex problems, preparing them for life in the physical world. None of this means AI will be able to match the human brain anytime soon. While AI companies and entrepreneurs aim to create what they call artificial general intelligence, a machine that can do anything the human brain can do, 
This remains a daunting task. For all its rapid gains, AI remains in the early stages. Here's a guide to how AI is setting to change this year, beginning with the nearest-term advancements, which will lead to further progress in its abilities. Instant videos. Until now, AI-powered applications mostly generated text and still images in response to prompts. DAL-E, for instance, can create photorealistic images within seconds off requests like a rhino diving off the Golden Gate Bridge. But this year, companies such as OpenEye, AI, Google, Meta, and the New York-based Runway are likely to deploy image generators that allow people to generate videos, too. These companies have already built prototypes of tools that can instantly create videos from short text prompts. Tech companies are likely to fold the powers of image and video generators into chatbox, making the chatbox more powerful. Next, multimodal chatbots. Chatbots and image generators, originally developed as separate tools, are gradually merging. When OpenAI debuted a new version of ChatBT last year, the chatbox would generate images as well as text. AI companies are building multimodal systems, meaning the AI can handle multiple types of media. These systems learn skills by analyzing photos, text, and potentially other kinds of media, including diagrams, charts, sounds, and video, so they can then produce their own text, images, and sounds. That is in all. Because the systems are also learning the relationship between different types of media, they will be able to understand one type of media and respond with another. In other words, someone may feed an image into a chatbot, and it will respond with text. Next, better reasoning. When Mr. Altman talks about AIs taking a leap forward, he's referring to chatbots that are better at reasoning so they can take on more complex tasks such as solving complicated math problems and generating detailed computer programs. The aim is to build systems that can carefully and logically solve a problem through a series of discrete steps, each one building on the next. That is how humans reason, reason, at least in some cases. Leading scientists disagree on whether chatbots can truly reason like that. Some argue that these systems merely seem to reason as they repeat behavior they have seen in Internet data. But OpenAI and others are building systems that can more reliably answer complex questions involving subjects like math, computer programming, physics, and other sciences. As systems become more reliable, they will become more popular. If chatbots are better at reasoning, they can then turn into AI agents. As companies teach AI systems how to work through complex problems one step at a time, they can also improve the ability of chatbots to use software apps and websites on your behalf. Researchers are essentially transforming chatbots into a new kind of autonomous system called an AI agent. That means the chatbox can use software apps, websites, and other online tools, including spreadsheets, online calendars, and travel sites. People could then offload tedious office work to chatbox. But these agents could also take jobs away entirely. Chatbots already operate as agents in small ways. They can schedule meetings, edit files, analyze data, and build bar charts. But these old tools do not always work as well as they need to. Agents break down entirely when applied to more complex tasks. This year, AI companies are set to unveil agents that are more reliable. 
You should be able to delegate any tedious day-to-day computer work to an agent, Mr. Luan said. This might include keeping track of expenses in an app like QuickBooks or logging vacation days in an app like Workday. In the long run, it will extend beyond software and Internet services and into the world of robotics. And finally, smarter robots. In the past, robots were programmed to perform the same task over and over again, such as picking up boxes that are already the same size and shape. But using the same kind of technology that underpins Chatbox, researchers are giving robots the power to handle more complex tasks, including those they've never seen before. Just as Chatbox can learn to predict the next word in a sentence by analyzing vast amounts of digital text, A robot can learn to predict what will happen in the physical world by analyzing countless videos of objects being prodded, lifted, and moved. These technologies can absorb tremendous amounts of data, and as they absorb data, they can learn how the world works, how physics works, how you interact with objects. This year, AI will supercharge robots that operate behind the scenes, like mechanical arms that fold shirts at a laundromat or sort piles of stuff inside a warehouse. Tech titans like Elon Musk are already working to move humanoid robots into people's homes. You have been listening to Science Journal, a production of Audio Journal, a proud member of the Massachusetts Audio Information Network. If you would like a hard copy of our program schedule, either in large print or in Braille, please call 508-797-1117. Archived editions of this program are available on our website, audiojournal.org, or go to the Audio Journal app on your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. If you have an idea for a topic to explore, please contact Audio Journal at 508 797 1117 or email us at info at audiojournal.org. I'm Tricia Droney. Thanks so much for listening today. You are listening to Audio Journal, a proud member of the Massachusetts Audio Information Network. This is Bird Note. The wandering tattler is one of the few birds equally at home along the coast and high in the mountains. They're shorebirds with a ringing alarm call that tends to cause any other birds in the area to fly off too, tattling about a potential threat up and down the beach. They're found far and wide along Pacific shores, living up to their wandering name as well. Cultures throughout the ocean basin have names for this bird, demonstrating how widely they range. In Hawaiian, they're called ulili, and in Tahitian, uriri, both probably reflecting the undulating sound of their call. Their nesting habitats remained a mystery for many years, leaving the shore far behind. They travel far inland to mountainous habitats in Alaska, western Canada, and eastern Russia. Despite their wide range, there could be as few as 18,000 wandering tattlers left in the world. To keep this species around, it's essential to protect the habitats they rely on and to learn more about their lives. If you see a wandering tattler reporting your sighting on eBird, helps add to the scientific picture of this mysterious bird. For Bird Note, 
I'm Michael Stein. Are you elderly or disabled? Did you know each WRTA fixed route bus has a number of accessibility features such as a ramp to enter, a kneeler which can lower the bus, a securement area for wheelchairs and other mobility devices, priority seating for people with disabilities, electronic signage on the front side and rear exterior, a bicycle rack on the front exterior, an interior stop request sign, automated audio and visual stop announcements. Let us make your transportation needs easier and ride the bus with us. Call us with questions at 508-791-9782 or visit our website at www.therta.com. 